afford anything but not everything. Every decision that you make comes with a cost. Everything has a trade-off. And so the question is, what's most important to you? And that question applies to every arena of your life. Your money, your time, your energy, anything that you have that's a scarce or a limited resource. Now, figuring out how to answer this question in a way that's wise is really a lifetime practice. And often there's a lot of screw-ups along the way. This podcast is here to help you figure that out. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast. And today, I'd like to tell you a little story about a couple named Scott and Taylor. Once upon a time, a few years ago, Scott and Taylor lived a charmed, beautiful, very enviable Southern California lifestyle. They lived on a gorgeous beach in San Diego. They dined at sushi restaurants. They owned a BMW. They had that perfect life. And that might have gone on indefinitely were it not for one major change. They had a baby. And when that happened, Taylor suddenly, her priorities shifted. She didn't want to spend any time away from that baby. And that, for the first time ever, introduced the idea that perhaps they might become a one-income family. That wasn't something that they had ever planned on. And the lifestyle that they were living, the lifestyle that they had developed, depended on dual incomes. So what next? What were they supposed to do? I won't give away any of the ending. I'll let Scott tell it in his own words. But here's a quick spoiler alert. Their journey led them into the path of financial independence. And they are now filming a documentary about that journey. Here to tell you all about this story is Scott Rickens. Hey, Scott. Hi, Paula. It's good to hear your voice again. <laughs> okay, so the behind the scenes, the reason that's funny is because Scott and I have been talking for like 45 minutes and I finally just pressed record. <laughs> we should be recording this call. There's some gold happening here. <laughs> well, when you're catching up with old friends, right? I mean, it just exactly comes natural. So you and I, a, a little backstory. So the reason that we're old friends is because we hung out together in Ecuador at the Chautauqua for a week. Which was uh, an amazing experience. Yeah. That came about because you happened to listen to a podcast while you were driving to work one day. And like five months later, you were in Ecuador. What happened that day that you were driving to work listening to a podcast? And how did that eventually start a chain reaction that caused you to go to Ecuador, move to Oregon, and then be on the Skype call with me? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, I, I actually owe it all to my wife. My wife, her name's Taylor, and you also met her in, in Ecuador. And she was very, very unhappy. And she was unhappy because she had to go back to work. We had just had our first daughter, our only daughter, and she was going through, I don't know if it's postpartum or anything like that, but she was going through this thing that I'm sure most mothers go through where she did not want to spend any time away from that baby. And so that was the first time I ever realized or thought about the idea of Taylor not working because she's always been fairly career driven. She's, you know, incredibly intelligent and good at what she does, brings a lot of value to the project she's on. And so what does uh, she do? Uh, she's in recruitment. Actually, her her mom started a recruiting company up here in Seattle, like 25 years ago. And her sister took over the company, I think about 10 years ago. And then Taylor joined five or six years ago. So it's a family run company and um, very proud of all of them. They're fantastic. But I never considered 
the possibility of her not doing that. <laughs> not that it wouldn't ever happen, but we were just beginning our careers. You know, we were kind of just in the upswing in our early 30s. All of a sudden, there was this stark realization that Taylor was staring at me and being like, "I don't want to. I don't want to work anymore. Like, I, I hate this idea of going back." And, and you know, this was attributed to early motherhood and figuring all that out. But at the time, I was like freaking out. I was like, "Oh my gosh! Okay, well, my personality is like, okay, well, I'll do everything I can to try to help." And so, I was walking our baby every night because that was the only way we could get her to go to sleep, and I would have to walk sometimes for three or four or five hours just to make sure that she slept long enough. And I started enjoying it because I started like finding podcasts and I would like learn as I walked and I was also getting exercise and it was actually kind of nice, you know, other than you having like a really heavy backpack on the front of you started to mess with my back a little bit. But, um, but yeah, I was doing a lot of research on podcasts to try to figure out how to crack this case to try to solve this problem for Taylor. And, my initial instinct was to go to, well, how do I come up with a million dollar idea? You know, how do I come up with something that completely changes the wealth game for us so that we literally could retire early because we lived in a very high cost of living area. So whatever we did to have Taylor stop working had to be drastic. And so I kind of went down that rabbit hole because I'm an entrepreneur. That was the thing that made sense to me. So I was listening to Pat Flynn. I was listening to um, Tim Ferriss. I was listening to these people that talk about growth hacking and, you know, entrepreneurship and trying to uh, raise money. I, I listened to the entire like Y Combinator podcast, you know, trying to figure out how, how startup culture works and how do you uh, raise capital. And and anyway, yeah, one day I was driving to work and just popped in another Tim Ferriss podcast. And what struck me about this one was he introduced the guest who was Mr. Money Mustache as like one of the most requested interviews he's ever had. And he was surprised that it took this long to get him on the podcast. And I just thought like, wow, you know, I'm, I've been listening to this podcast for a long time. And some of the most amazing minds of our time have already been on this podcast, I've already listened to those episodes. Who is this guy who is the most requested, you know, and how have I not heard of him before, especially with a name like that, I would have remembered, right, Mr. Money Mustache. So that kind of caught my attention. And then within about 15 minutes into that interview, I think they had done a fairly good job of kind of briefly explaining why Mr. Money Mustache was a highly requested guest. And basically, he was hacking life to live as free as anyone I had ever heard of. I pulled over to the side of the road and made an excuse to be late to work and listen to the whole thing. I mean, it was it was like, holy cow. And, and it opened up the opportunities and possibilities, not only for this in front of my face problem of Taylor not wanting to work, but on a broader scale for our entire life. I felt like I was suddenly doing everything wrong and here was a way to do it right. That was like my initial feeling. And it was just, it was profound. And I later found out it's called like a Harajuku moment. Uh, at least that was coined by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's like a moment in time when you realize like something needs to change immediately. And that was it for me. It was like, okay, wait a minute. My savings rate is more powerful than my earning rate in my case, you know? that seems more actionable. I don't have to start a million dollar company. I don't have to come up with this brilliant idea that was, I found out later was stressing me the hell out and making me unhappy. I enjoy coming up with ideas. I enjoy the process of thinking how something could be better. And that's kind of my world to some extent, but having the pressure to come up with that is not fun. You know, it's more when it's natural when it comes to you. So to be able to let that go 
and then start focusing on learning the habits and tactics and strategies behind this idea of fire was fun. It was immediate. There was instant gratification involved for us because we were spending at a high rate and frivolously on things we didn't need. But at the time, we probably thought we did need them, you know? So, um, yeah, that instant gratification was there and it was like, oh my gosh. And so that's why it hit me like such a hurricane. It was just a storm of, of positivity and instant gratification happening left and right for me anyway. So that's my induction story to fire to some extent, I guess. <laughs> Tell me about some of those first cuts. So you said that there were a lot of things that you thought you needed, but then upon further reflection, it turns out that you didn't need them. So essentially, you kind of redefined what's a need and what's a want. What were some of those things and how did you redefine those items, those purchases? You know, if I think back to those early stages I probably went for the easy stuff, the low-hanging fruit. And as I think about that now, I would inverse this tree. <laughs> but at the time, the low-hanging fruit was like the daily Starbucks runs, you know, the constant Amazon, like, oh, you know what? I need that. Oh, and Amazon can get that for me in a day. So I'm just going to click that button quick. You know, I just don't feel like cooking tonight. Um, and so because I don't feel like cooking tonight, I'm going to see if I can convince my wife that sushi is a good idea tonight. And we'll make it a fun game. It's funny because like we always tried, we always had the intent of being good budgeters, right? We never got into debt, but we'd, we'd always be like, oh, you know, we don't, we don't need to be going to sushi twice a week. We don't need to be going out to restaurants. But then like Thursday night would hit and you've cooked in the house three nights in a row and you're kind of tired of what you have. You don't feel like going to the grocery store because you worked all day. Uh, your baby needs to eat in the next 30 minutes. And you're just like screw it, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to go to sushi because I can't afford it was the idea, I think. And, and it'll bring us some level of happiness. And sometimes we kind of argue about it. It's never like serious, but it's like, yeah, we really don't. You know, Taylor was way better about that than I was. I was usually the instigator. So those were the initial things that we would start to cut back on. I, I was more conscious of it. I was definitely doing Starbucks run every morning. I could talk myself into anything, Paula. I mean, you know, I could afford anything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you could um, afford everything. <laughs> but not everything. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I remember going to Starbucks in the morning and justifying it as, yes, I have a coffee machine here. And yes, I have breakfast food in the pantry. But by going to Starbucks, it takes me, you know, seven minutes to get in and out with a mobile order. Whereas if I cook myself breakfast and get myself a cup of coffee, it's going to take 15 to 20. And I need that sleep because I have a small baby and she doesn't sleep much. And, you know, I can justify anything. And so I'm actually gaining time sleeping, which is making me better at work. And then when I get to work, I'm already fired up and ready to go as opposed to if I use their coffee, you know. And that was the other, that was the other side of it was that uh, my work also offered like amazing coffee for us every day. And yet I was going to Starbucks like, what the hell? I was surrounded by free coffee and I still <laughs> found a reason to buy it. You know, it's unbelievable mm. now that I think about that. But at the time, I was so justified and everything was fine. So those were the initial low hanging fruit things that I started to work on on myself. And Taylor was fairly good at it already, to be honest. I mean, she was kind of naturally frugal that way. And I was the one that kind of lost my way, I think, on that front. But it's not to say that she didn't have her own vices. You know, we started looking around. Once the Starbucks habit was well taken care of and the restaurant thing was starting to die down a bit, uh, we started looking at the bigger stuff. I started looking at the bigger stuff. Taylor didn't actually come around to this right away. But 
started looking at the cars, you know, and Taylor was leasing a BMW at the time. And I had a brand new Mazda 3 hatchback that I was leasing. We were leasing two vehicles and um, we lived, specifically lived on an island called Coronado where you could walk and bike right everywhere. And Taylor worked remote. I had an office, but, you know, do we really need two cars? And do they both need to be brand new? And so, yeah, we started just kind of scrutinizing everything. And that led to, we live in California. This is a very expensive state. We live in Coronado. It's one of the most expensive zip codes in the freaking world, I think. That's when it kind of dawned on me that we could probably reconstruct our entire life. And we didn't have a lot of excuses not to. And I started doing some numbers on that and started running some math. I, I think, uh, who said, is it Christy that says math that shit up? <laughs> I don't know, but that's a really good saying. <laughs> <laughs> I love that saying. It stuck with me. I think it's Millennial Revolution, but don't quote me on that. And I'm sorry if it isn't. Whoever came up with that, it's awesome. Uh, keep going with it. But I'll look it up and I'll, I'll throw that in the outro or the show notes or something. I'll, fi- I'll find out who said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but started running the numbers and I made a very strong case for blowing up our life to Taylor. <laughs> mm-hmm. But before I did that, I have to tell you, I knew that just coming to her and saying like, hey, I think you should move off of this island that you love and get rid of your BMW wouldn't probably land with her. And luckily, I had read enough on all the blogs that I was consuming. It was uh, yours. It was Pete's. It was Brandon's. It was Jim's, Liz's. You know, I I really went down the rabbit hole. I listened to a lot of podcasts. So uh, the Mad Finances podcast was like, a daily until I ran out of them. And then I was searching for other things. I think that's how I found you. And, you know, it just snowballs. And um, I had heard enough about the mad scientist's experience with his wife and the whole, uh, you know, them not being on the same page or she was not quite on board, but he was still pursuing this stuff. And I just I recognized early on that I needed to pay close attention to how I brought Taylor into this fold, into this new lifestyle that I was strongly considering and that I needed her support to effectively do it the way at least I had envisioned for us. Luckily, I just had this idea that seemed to work. And I, you know, upon further reflection, it was probably like one of the smarter things that I did early on. But I asked her to write down a list of the top 10 things that make her happy on a weekly basis. And I chose weekly because I felt like daily was too, you know, instant gratification, sort of like it was too close to like very detailed things. Yeah. And a month or a year, anything longer than a week was was too kind of peripheral, you know, it was kind of too out there is like, well, what makes you happy? Oh, um, my BMW makes me happy. You could say that after, you know, on, on like the bigger picture stuff. Whereas a week is just kind of like, what's going on this week? I don't know. Uh, I've got this and this and this to do. And so it's a nice framework to say like, what's bringing me happiness within this week where you don't get too in the weeds. And she came up with this list pretty quickly and it was great because it was filled with time with family. It was filled with experiences. It was outdoors. It was um, things that I knew that my wife loved and that I loved about her and that we loved together and mm-hmm. all the things I was hoping she would write down. And it was spend time with my baby and, you know, have my husband cook me a meal and good wine, but it doesn't have to be expensive and <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. chocolate. And, and I went down the list and I, and I realized a couple of things that I could sort of use to prod her in the direction that I was hoping to take her in, which was there's only three things on this list that cost money, making dinner, wine and chocolate. And 
dinner is an expense that's not going to go away. And I won't take wine and chocolate away from you. <laughs> you <laughs> buy as much wine and chocolate as you want if you come along uh, with me on this crazy idea that I have. And the other thing was the beach wasn't on the list. And it's not to say that she didn't love the beach or that it didn't bring her happiness, but it didn't make the top 10. Mm. We were spending so much money living that close to the beach that mm-hmm. it needs to be in the top 10 to justify. <laughs> right. That was sort of the the launching point, the foundational conversation that allowed us to to have honest discussions where it didn't get into blame or shame or any of the negative emotions that we've now had to go through either with ourselves or with others. You know, we've learned a lot about this now, but at the time, you know, we got to kind of skip over a lot of that and just focus on, oh, okay, if we start scrutinizing the decisions that we're making, the choices that we're making, especially around money, in a smarter way, in a more sophisticated way, we can drastically change our lives for the better and really like gain control back. What we hadn't realized and what I think I was ultimately showing Tay was that we had let, and I say we with a strong we, we had let lifestyle creep creep in and we didn't even notice. And I think that was the biggest benefit. That was the biggest like thank you that I wanted to give to Pete and to the entire fire community like right away was that Oh my God, you opened my eyes to the fact that I was, I had succumbed to lifestyle creep without knowing it. And that was the most powerful thing. That was the most powerful gift that fire gave us was that hard punch in the face (laughs) Mm. (laughs) that we were definitely in desperate need of, but that took work to get out of that situation. And that's a whole, that's a whole story that we're currently documenting (laughs) in front of a camera. Did you ever make a list like that for yourself? A 10 things that make you happy on a weekly basis. I did. I did. Um, And it was eerily similar or maybe not so, right? She's my wife and we have similar interests and loves and wants and needs. I think honestly, one of the only differences, it's not very interesting. We're kind of like the boring married couple in that sense, right? Um, The list was very similar. It's just spending time together. didn't matter what it was. I think the, the major differences was Taylor enjoys running and she enjoys being outside, walking and biking. And those standard things just bring her happiness and calmness. And I need a little more, I don't know, stimulation, you know, so I had a little more like mountain biking and skiing and fishing and things like that. But that was about it. I mean, it was and, and that was a lesson in and of itself. Right. We are aligned in the things that make us happy. So let's mm. align our lifestyle around things that make us happy. And that should be pretty easy because we both like the same things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. but you know, we hadn't even had discussions like this before. And, and why wouldn't we? Um, happiness is so important. Why aren't we focused on that more often? You know, it's not something you have to think about every single day. It should hopefully come fairly natural. But, you know, we've been together for nine years and married for probably seven or six or seven. We'd probably never had that discussion on purpose. Hmm. The happiness list was a really good idea, and it set the framework and the foundation for let's get on the same page about being happy. And it's funny because we're not talking about money. We're talking about happiness. Yeah, so that was kind of the the beginning. (laughs) Hmm. And so that was where you saw the disconnect between we're paying all of this money for leasing a brand new BMW when, in fact, the thing that really makes us happy is going for a run. Yeah, and so there's two things on that front, right? If you get to the car— It's really, really fascinating. I think, one, you have to have your lifestyle built to not need a vehicle, right? Which is difficult for a lot of people. It's not necessarily obvious or easy. 
you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I think Pete does a great job of that in a few blogs where he talks about a lot of people make the decision to go move to the suburbs, move quite a distance away from their workplace because it's cheaper to buy a home or, you know, something like that. And, and, and he makes the case that it's not because by the time you factor in the amount of time and money you're spending on the vehicle and on the road to get to that job from this cheaper home, if you put that money towards the more expensive home in the city center, you'd be surprised how close you can get to it. And you don't even need to necessarily buy something you could rent that could potentially even decrease that cost further on a short-term basis. And so mm-hmm. make some great cases for that. And I think that's a whole nother discussion on on utility of the vehicle itself and how you can design your life around how many vehicles you need, if you need one at all, and things like that. And I'm very excited and um, optimistic about the future of that with autonomous vehicles and uh, and just you know the ride sharing in general, how easy mm-hmm. it is to get around now. Public transportation, there's a lot of options. But Uh, We're very blessed and we're very spoiled, right? I love ride sharing. It's opened up so much. Oh my gosh, right? And getting out of a car ride and saying, okay, I just spent $15 on a car ride. You might think like, geez, I can't do this all the time. I'm going to need to buy a car, right? But if you start designing your life around not needing to take that $15 ride all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Or uh, finding alternative modes of transportation, it could be far cheaper than owning a vehicle over the lifetime of that vehicle, right? Exactly. It can absolutely be much cheaper to rarely need to be in a car and Uber or Lyft whenever it is that you do need it. And if you use things like Instacart to get groceries delivered, all right, great. That's an Uber ride that you don't have to take because for a $6 <laughs> yeah. delivery fee, you don't have to to go to the grocery store and come back. I mean, there's a lot of ways to avoid needing to own a car. That's a great point is even over the last five or 10 years, the especially in major cities, the proliferation of things being delivered to you is mm-hmm. continuing to get cheaper, more economical. Uh, it's far easier. You get more time to yourself to do whatever you need to do with it. So, yeah. So on that front, I think there's a lot of great cases to be made uh, around decreasing your fleet uh, mm-hmm. transportation and being very aware of that. But back to Taylor's BMW, this was a fascinating viewpoint from my wife that I had never considered. She had never talked about before. And I don't think she even knew it until... Uh, a little bit later on in our journey, in our fire journey. And she can, I I wish she was here to tell you this story because she tells it better than I do. But ultimately she was working very hard. She works long hours, you know, and when she's at work, it can be stressful and just like anybody else's job, you know, and she felt like she was working really, really hard. And so she started to feel like she deserved to enjoy the benefits of that work, right? Mm -hmm. Also, she was tormented by the idea that She had to be away from her baby, be away from her family, me, in order to work. And that didn't sit right with her. She didn't like that. And so she thought, well, if I buy a BMW, if I buy a luxury vehicle, then it's kind of like treat yourself, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, I am treating myself with this car to reward myself and to feel better about having to work really hard. And basically Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm buying this vehicle so that I can justify continuing to go to work. (laughs) Mm, It's a a mask or a Band-Aid over the unhappiness. Yes. She didn't know that at the time. It was really more like, no, you know, when I because I remember when she brought this idea to me, I've never been a big fan of luxury vehicles my entire life. I did have a solid background in that. My parents uh, were fairly frugal and smart with those types of decisions. And I always kind of also felt that like a luxury vehicle, it's like, 
why do you feel the need to own that? You know, like, is there, Mm -hmm. are you compensating for something like, you know, that kind of thing, which is a little outrageous. I mean, some people just enjoy solid engineering and (laughs) craftsmanship and comfortable seats and that's fine. But it made me uncomfortable to think that we owned a BMW. And so I kind of pushed against it. And I remember, you know how you're supposed to pick and choose your battles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was one I instantly recognized as I'm not going to put up a fight anymore. (laughs) Taylor was adamant about this. And, you know, so I helped her set a budget, which I secretly didn't think she'd be able to hit because they're very expensive. But she somehow found out that BMWs actually lease used BMWs. And it's like one of the only car companies that does that. So she was able to find a lease in the sort of monthly price range that we had set. Since then, we've learned so many things, right? Like you don't set budgets based on per month. (laughs) Mm -hmm. again you math that shit up and then you figure out what's going to cost you over like 10 years you know with interest like with compounding interest where if that money was otherwise spent in the stock market or invested in the stock market what's that car really costing you Mm -hmm. and so we know that now but we didn't know that then and taylor did not know that it was a a band-aid or a mask but she has since had those revelations and yeah we eventually pried that car out of her you know death grip and um she let it go and And kudos to her. I mean, she has come so far so fast. It's been incredible. And on some levels, I feel like we have rediscovered ourselves. And it's been really enjoyable to like meet each other again on some fronts. You know, we've gotten so much more aligned because of all of this. And yet, I'm not trying to paint a perfectly rosy picture. There's been a lot of lessons learned, hard lessons learned. There's been pain. There's been moments where we've gone too far with things. We're still trying to find balance in some of these things, these decisions that we have to make. There's there's the whole society around you scrutinizing and looking at you weird. And <laughs> there's all, all these things that you hear about or you read and just doesn't really hit home until you experience them. It hasn't been all roses, but there's definitely been some fantastic lessons learned and positivity that has come out of it. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. Hey, do you want to work out, but you don't want to pay for a gym? Check out Beachbody On Demand. Beachbody On Demand is an easy-to-use streaming service that gives you instant access to a huge variety of effective workouts that you can do from the comfort of your living room, or from a campground, or from a hotel room, or from your Airbnb, wherever it is that you are. You can do it anywhere as long as you have some type of internet-enabled device like a smartphone or a laptop or a tablet. It has a history of success. This is the company behind P90X, Insanity, The 21 Day Fix, The 3 Week Yoga Retreat. They've got a bunch of celebrity super trainers such as Shaleen Johnson and Sean T. They've got hundreds of effective workouts from beginner through advanced and everything from bodybuilding to cardio to yoga to dance to weight training. Uh, The workouts are as short as 10 minutes. There are plenty that don't require any extra equipment. The one that I like the best is the T25 program exactly because it does not require any extra equipment, which means that when I'm traveling, it's not a problem. Also, the T25 is only 25 minutes, so that's kind of nice, too, because it's just it's easier to do something that's 25 minutes than it is to do something that's an hour. I really want you to try this service because it's affordable, it's convenient, and it's fun and effective, and there's a bunch of variety, and I think you'll like it. So right now, my listeners can get a free special trial membership when you text Paula to 303030. You will get full access to this entire platform for free 
all the workouts, the nutrition information and support, totally free. Again, just text Paula to 303030. Text Paula, P-A-U-L-A, to 303030. You know, if you run a small business, you know that payroll and benefits are tough because you don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And the thing is, the really old school payroll providers are not built for the way that you work today. That's why Gusto makes payroll benefits and HR easy for small businesses. Their modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easier to get things right. Gusto makes payroll a breeze. In fact, 9 out of 10 users say that Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions, and 72% of customers spend less than 5 minutes to run payroll. Don't believe it? Just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you hear about people who love their payroll provider? I mean, come on, right? Like, the thing is, if you run a small business, you know that most small businesses don't have an HR expert And thanks to Gusto, you don't need one because they've got great software and great service, which means you can focus on your business, not on payroll and paperwork. Now, to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you will get three months free once you run your first payroll. So go to gusto.com slash Paula. That's G-U-S-T-O dot com slash Paula. And you'll get three months free as soon as you run your first payroll. Again, G-U-S-T-O, gusto.com slash Paula. some of those those hard lessons, those pain points, what were they? And were they ones that you had expected or heard about? This is something I guess I had peripherally sort of heard about, which was the idea that the fire community kind of sees itself as a bit of a, of a cult. And that by definition, sort of like uh, us against you, like us against society. Society doesn't quite get this or this is just a little different. This is, you know, off of center. So I, I got that concept, but I didn't feel changed on that front. You know, I still feel like me. I didn't really grasp um, or respect like how far removed we were from, I guess, day-to-day society once we really started understanding all of this framework that FIRE had provided us. I don't know if that's too too opulent of a way to describe that, you know, but I did not fully realize how alienating it can be or... To put it another way, I wasn't prepared, Taylor was not prepared for the reactions that we've gotten from our friends and family at times, not everyone, but plenty of people who we love, who we've known forever, who when we're excited about something, we feel like we could share it with them regardless of what it is. And they're probably going to share in our passion and excitement or at least like be excited to hear about our passion or excitement, even if it doesn't fit them. And we didn't recognize what I think we've figured out to be that fire and a lot of the things that we're talking about actually open up a lot of, I don't know, it opens up a lot of wounds. It can make people feel judged. It can make people feel defensive and unintentionally, right? I mean, Taylor and I wouldn't dream of judging people on purpose. I think that's kind of like a baseline for us. And yet we were in our excitement, just describing these lessons and these tactics and strategies that we've now been implementing and all these amazing people that we've been meeting and and learning from and reading about and so on and so forth. 
we never thought that just by expressing that experience that we could actually elicit that type of emotion out of our friends and family of all people, you know, people that we're fairly good at talking to and have a lot of experience in it. That is by far, I think, one of the hardest things that's happened to us is just dealing with that. Like when you're excited about something just in general, and then, you know, somebody's kind of staring at you blankly back, that alone isn't very comfortable, right? It's not very mm. fun. But when it's your family and they're feeling judged and you can tell that the the mood has changed in the room, I mean, that's that's a palatable thing. That's a that was something we did not expect. That is something that was very uncomfortable. It was not fun to do. It was not fun to experience. And we left a few of those experiences feeling really bad, you know, feeling really like worried. Like, what did we do? What just happened? Why did that happen? And through trial and error and time and reflection, I think we've come to the realization that we needed to get better at talking about this, uh, that this is sort of a something that y you have to practice. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. You've been doing this a long time. I mean, have you run into that type of issue? Oh, absolutely. The judgment comes from, and particularly on the blog, was, was where I really saw it because, I mean, of course, internet comments are internet comments and there will always be trolls. But the way that trolls get to you is when they hit upon what feels like a kernel of truth or when they poke at your insecurities. Sometimes the reaction that I would get would be just pure misunderstanding, right? Like mm -hmm. people who would say, are you just sitting around drinking martinis all day every day? Uh, are you sitting on the beach drinking pina coladas all day every day? And that was not very difficult to handle because there's no kernel of truth that they're hitting. It would be as if they said like, oh, well, do you just have pink hair? I mean, no. no. And that idea is so detached from reality that I'm not even going to have an emotional reaction to it because that idea is just that detached from reality. <laughs> There's no defense necessary on that front. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then the Internet comments that would poke at some type of insecurity, like your parents immigrated here so that you could have a better life and you're not even doing what it was that they imagined you would do. You're not even going to grad school, having a career, advancing into some prestigious position at some prestigious company. That was tough. That was really uh, tough because it hit that chord or it struck that chord. That strikes me as something that I would never expect. Was that the case for you? I mean, I would never expect somebody to see it that way. So that would like throw me off. Like, what? Like, I feel like we're really off topic here, right? <laughs> uh, no, it struck a chord for me because it was a lingering doubt in my own mind. Mm, okay, so you had thought about that. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, the the way that I was raised, you know, my parents had very prescriptive expectations for me that I would go to college and then immediately upon graduation have an arranged marriage and then go to grad school and then get a job and then either work for 40 years or become a stay-at-home mom. So they had outlined a very linear path for me that they had talked to me about for as since I was a little girl, for as long as I can remember. And so deviating from that by saying, hey, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to go travel around the world. Now I'm going to, instead of buying a first home for myself, I'm going to buy a triplex and live in one of the units and I'm going to house hack into my first home. And now I'm going to buy even more properties and, and I'm never going to have an employer again. I'm done. <laughs> That sounds like an amazing life. But when you're uh, deviating from that indoctrination that you had all, all your life, I could see why it'd be uncomfortable or at least uh, a lingering doubt. Sure. 
my question to you is like, how do you deal with that? I mean, so you have your own personal insecurity about that and that's what it's triggering. But how does that conversation proceed? Like, how does it move forward? Mm. I think in part what I have tried to tell myself is that despite the fact that people, including family, especially family, can be prescriptive about the details of what they want. They can be prescriptive about the path that they think that I should follow. Ultimately, what they they actually want when you zoom out and you look at it at a 30,000-foot level is they want me to be safe, happy, independent. They want a set of values rather than a particular formula. You know, they're prescribing this formula because they believe that the formula will lead to these ideals. But what they really want are those ideals. And as long as I'm meeting those ideals, then I know that I'm getting to the heart of what they want, even if the path there was different. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, kind of reframing the conversation around what what you're really talking about. Yeah, and I think, you know, that in, in some cases, that's probably fairly easy. And in other cases, it's it's more difficult, depending on who you're talking to and what you're talking about. But I'll tell you what, this is the one thing that has really surprised me. And honestly, it's encouraged me too. It's encouraged me to continue uh, working on the project that we're working on to frame this as best we can to try and explain <laughs> as best we can, as succinctly as we can, what this is all about, but not just explain it, show it, you know? And um, that's the opportunity that I think we have that's that's really, really exciting and special is that we get to show. I mean, that's that's why... Taylor and I actually decided to put ourselves in front of the camera. That was a that was not an easy choice. It wasn't an obvious choice. It wasn't an immediate choice. My background is filmmaking, and I'm comfortable behind the camera. Um, I'm comfortable producing the set, but not not being the talent, so to speak. But at the same time, I think we would have squandered an opportunity had we not done that because we, you know, like you said, I mean, we found this this whole amazing community and and lifestyle framework in February. And we moved August 1st. You know, that's a fairly quick turnaround. And I got this project started in July. Um, So it was, you know, three or four months of pondering, thinking, learning, you know, and then the decision or, you know, I don't know. It just kind of like dawned on me that this would be an amazing documentary. And I started looking for one and didn't find one and thought, oh, okay, there's an opportunity. But that wasn't an immediate like, okay, we're going to film ourselves. It was just, I'm going to go tell that story of the fire community. But then I realized like, we're going to start doing all this stuff for real right away. And we can document that and show what it's like, you know, the hardships, the triumphs, the wins, the losses and everything in between. And and hopefully also kind of provide a bit of a step-by-step framework for like, if somebody hears, hears about this stuff and starts learning about it, oftentimes, and I know I went through this, it was like, where do I begin? You know, where do you start? That's our hope is that we can. And by doing that, the hope would be that with an, with an end product that's entertaining, informative, and thorough, that covers as many bases as, as we possibly can, then the hope is that the viewer comes away with an understanding of what the FIRE community is about, who the people are that are involved in this and have kind of championed this and and brought this to the forefront and what that story is all about. And then also, while we're learning about that, you know, you watch a linear story of, of Scott and Taylor going through this uh, wide eyed and bushy tailed. And, you know, you can see the nervous, fearful Scott walking into 
you know, the Mr. Money Mustache World headquarters for the first time meeting Pete. And you can feel that, <laughs> you know, and you can feel, you know, when we're living with our parents to try to save money and it's, you know, month two and we've got this two-year-old and our parents and we don't have our own space or time. And it was not fun being 30-something-year-old working professionals living with our parents, you know? It's like... Mm, with a two-year-old. With a two-year-old, like, there's some serious sacrifice there that maybe we underestimated. <laughs> you can feel that. So I think there's an element of entertainment to that, but there's an ele- there's a large element of truth to that that showcases that, you know, this isn't easy. You know, there was a line that I heard when I first got into this. It was something like... um it's simple, but that doesn't make it easy. And I love that line because that's what I was so excited about with FIRE was that I always shied away from investment strategy and investments in general because it felt like such a daunting topic to take on. And I was already sort of like a busy working professional and the whole like investment lesson had kind of skipped me in high school and college. And I just didn't have the damn time or to be honest, the interest. And to find how simple it was to break down why and how you should invest through the lens of, you know, JL Collins, for me, The Simple Path to Wealth, that book was just eye-opening, revolutionary. I've gifted that thing like 15 times already. Jim told me when I when I met with him recently in Portland, uh, he was disappointed that the number wasn't 50. But if you know, <laughs> if you know him, you, you know why he said that. <laughs> I, was, I thought I'd be impressing him. Hey, Jim, I have gifted your book 15 times. Well, that's not 50, you know? (laughs) I can completely picture that too. I have that image in my head right now. (laughs) I love that guy. By the way, we'll we'll link to that book in the show notes. (laughs) Oh, please do. Yeah. Oh, maybe I can get to 50 a lot faster doing that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now I've got a new story for him. But, you know, that book really framed such a simple path to wealth and not just to wealth, but just to a, um, I don't want to say stress-free, but a much less stressful investment strategy where I don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I know it's in good hands and I really don't have to care about it for a, a really long time. That was such a gift. It proved to me, or at least it convinced me that this path was a simple path. Get your savings rate as high as you can, embrace frugality, maybe learn a little bit about stoicism, focus on happiness, invest in index funds, maybe dabble in real estate if, you, if you're interested and set it and forget it. Like, okay, cool, cool. That's pretty simple. You know, <laughs> wait, I can do that and retire in like 10 years or 15 years or any number of years that's less than what I was heading for. Fantastic. But that doesn't make it easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And, and the hard part is, is putting in the work and believing in it when you're not seeing it happen quickly and, you know, things like that. And so, there's quite a journey to this whole thing and, and we're just in the very beginning of it, but you know, we've, we're, we're going to be able to at least bring the first year of what this is like to the big screen. And hopefully it's something that is relatable to a lot of people. And uh, there's a lot of lessons in there and hopefully it's something that, you know, people can take with them. And even if they just utilize a few of the strategies uh, that fire implements to, to better their lives then then it's a win. But But the best case scenario would be that the fire community that has to deal with these things that I've now experienced myself, that I was getting emails about, you know, when I first launched this project and talked about it, I got a lot of a lot of incoming mail about, you know, I really hope that this project helps me talk to my friends and family about this because there's just nothing out there right now that I can really point them to. There's a whole bunch of blogs and podcasts, but who has the time, you know, that kind of thing. And 
Right. And if people are already in the habit of reading blogs or listening to podcasts, they're not typically they're not about to start. That's a great point. That's a you're, great point. You're either a podcast listener or you're not. Isn't that funny? It's like podcasts are such a part of my life when you talk to somebody, and you're like, oh, I was listening to this podcast. And I'm like, you know, do you listen to podcasts? No, no, I don't. Uh, no. How do you do that? I'm like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have explained to so many people how to download a podcast. I'm like, wow, I'm teaching this person. I'm not just bringing them onto my podcast. I'm teaching them how to listen to podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if they will or not. I mean, there's a think at least a decent likelihood that they'll never actually open that app. But yeah, well, keep fighting the good fight because uh, it, it's an amazing medium and uh, it's an important one. And but I, you know, I do empathize with them. I can understand why it's not totally intuitive to start podcasting all the time. Like the, I'm fairly unimpressed with uh, Apple's new iP- podcast uh, app. And, you know, it's a little clunky and, you know, Stitcher is, you know, an app you have to find on the marketplace. You have to know it exists. You know, that's probably one of the best ones to listen to on Android. And, you know, so I, I understand that it's not like, wait, I just can't wait. Is it already on here? Like, how do I how do I turn it on? You know, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. We're all busy. But yeah, anyway, we, we digress. <laughs> we'll return to the show in just a moment. Are you an entrepreneur? Do you sell physical products online, stuff that you have to ship to your customers? If so, then as you probably know, when you're selling online, getting those orders out the door quickly can be tough. So check out ShipStation.com, which is a fast, easy way to manage and ship your orders all from one place. Whether you're using Shopify or Etsy or BigCommerce or Squarespace or over 75 other popular selling channels, ShipStation will bring all of those orders into one interface, which makes it easy for you to manage. And you can do it from any device. And then you can use ShipStation to create shipping labels for all the top carriers like UPS, FedEx, and the U.S. Postal Service. And so with ShipStation, you'll ship more in less time and you get access to the best rates available, discounted rates. So that's probably why ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. Right now, you can try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use my promo code PAULA. So don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Paula. That's ShipStation.com. Enter Paula, P-A-U-L-A. ShipStation. Make ship happen. You know, the world just wasn't built for the self-employed. Lots of services, like banking, retirement planning, and accounting services, aren't built for people who are freelancers or who are self-employed. But fortunately, FreshBooks is. FreshBooks is cloud-based, simple, easy-to-use accounting and invoicing software that is designed for the solopreneur. When you log in, it answers the one burning question that you really want to know, which is, how's business? The Notification Center is like your personal assistant. It tells you what's changed since you last logged in, and it tells you what you need to deal with, like overdue invoices. And speaking of overdue invoices, if you have a client that's late on making a payment, FreshBooks will automatically send them a late payment reminder so that you don't have to have an awkward conversation. If you want to give them a try, FreshBooks is offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial, and there's no credit card required. So just give them a try. To claim it, go to freshbooks.com slash Paula. And when they ask, how did you hear about us? Type in afford anything. Again, for a 30-day free trial, 
Go to FreshBooks.com slash Paula, P-A-U-L-A. And when they ask, how did you hear about us? Type in afford anything. So you were talking about the difficulties of some of the decisions that you made, right? Like you you were living on this beautiful island in Southern California, driving a BMW, living what from the outside looks like a very enviable life, but you were still chained to your jobs. And Taylor still had to go back to work even when she didn't want to. And so then you made the radical decision to leave California, to move in at least temporarily with your in-laws while you were raising a two-year-old so that you could save money and kickstart your journey to financial independence. And the day-to-day reality of that is tough, right? Like The day-to-day reality of waking up at your in-law's house when you've got a two-year-old and you've still got a full-time job and you're trying to make this documentary, and then you've got the stress of moving and of living with new people in a new place where you don't have your community. That's hard. You're giving me PTSD just saying it like that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have to start by just acknowledging that we're not complaining. I mean, we were living this ridiculous, like, saved by the bell kind of Southern California BMW lifestyle and complaining about it right now, right? And I I just want to address that paradox and explain myself a bit. Like, we are so fortunate that we were not in debt. We are so fortunate that we were raised by solid families who allowed us to get an education. We are so privileged to be in this country and to be born into this country. And we acknowledge and recognize that. And I would say more so now than ever. And I'm thankful for that. So that's important to know. And I think that's a it's a baseline that um, I think most people in this country should should reflect on if they haven't. And in any great country in this world, just to have that empathy for the people in this world who who don't have that opportunity. So I just want to set that straight. But that does not preclude us from having angst and stress and negative emotions around that existence. And and the scary part is when you don't know where it's coming from. And that's the trap that we were in. We didn't recognize what we were doing to ourselves. And honestly, I think you could make an argument that we had put ourselves in a situation where that would be the least obvious thing. Uh, if we're living in Southern California, where it's always 70 and sunny, and you know, you've got the beach right there, and everybody's fairly happy around you, it seems, and you have access to like every new potential health fad that's ever come out <laughs> in the existence of the world, you know, it started there. And so by all intents and purposes, it's paradise. And in a lot of ways, it is. I don't mean to to disparage Southern California. There are so many amazing things about it. And I could go on and on about them. And I love that place. And, you know, I was born in San Diego. I've lived there many times. And um, it'll always be a home away from home. And we have amazing friends and family that, you know, still live there. And, um, and we go back and we want to go back to see them as much as possible. But We were spending so much money ourselves because we had gotten into this lifestyle creep of we needed to have this or, you know, that BMW thing, like, it's so sad to say, but like, it wasn't even that big of a deal. Everybody has one down there. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's innocuous. It's like a Toyota Prius. It's like a Corolla down there and you don't even notice. And so this, this lifestyle just kind of came, crept up on us. And at least for me, I didn't know what was wrong, but something felt off. Something wasn't right. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Or, you know, I'd go to that sushi dinner and I'd just be like, eh, you know, and I'd I'd Mm -hmm. be like, why am I doing that around this 
tasty, amazing dinner that should be bringing me so much happiness that somebody had to, you know, go out and catch this fish and this fish gave up its life so that I could eat this delicious thing. And, you know, and then this person prepared it for me and it's like the most amazing taste in my mouth. But then when I'm done, I'm just like, eh. And it's because I got desensitized to all of this. I, we, we were desensitized to this lifestyle. And what we found out later was just that this stuff is not at the root of happiness. I had actually never heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, until I found the fire community. And I believe it was through Pete. And um, I think it was the post, uh, happiness is the only logical pursuit. It's one of my favorite posts. I believe he breaks down the Maslow's hierarchy of needs in that post and just explains it through the context of financial independence. That was an eye opener for me, understanding that if you believe in that sort of framework of, you know, there's like a ladder to what humans need to be happy. That was an eye-opening lesson to learn about, you know, food and shelter and water, the baseline and self-actualization uh, is at the very top. And there's all this messy, interesting stuff in between that you really need to work out. And so we were so fortunate to be in the position we were. And yet we were, I was fairly miserable and I didn't know why. So imagine finding this framework that that lifts that fog and starts giving me the answers. The gratitude that I have for that is just, it's beyond description. I could get emotional talking about it. I mean, it's completely changed our lives. And so that's the other fun thing is I just, I, I feel so fortunate that we have the opportunity to tell that story because how great would it be to sort of pay it forward, you know, to, to give that gift to so many others who may be experiencing what I was. That's what gets me so fired up and passionate. But if we don't share the parts that are difficult, then we're doing ourselves a disservice, you know, as a community. And I don't think we progress. I really love the idea that the fire community's hook is, hey, we can help you get rich and retire early. Like that's mm-hmm. a that's a pretty good sales pitch, right? Mm-hmm. And I love that. That's great. Most people, if they have never heard of this stuff and don't pay attention to these things, would hear that and go, uh, "Go on." <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the same time, that's not really what's going on, right? We're not just getting mm-hmm. rich and retiring early. Like some of the most productive people. I know are in this community and you know, they're not retired. It's just, you're retiring from this paradox of wage slavery and commuting drudgery and consumeristic tendencies that we're not even paying attention to. And, uh, and I get it. I mean, I, I was a part of that. I am a part of that. I still see it. It's just like my eyes are open when X company comes out with new X product. I now know what they're doing to me to get me to want that. And I, you know, I come from a marketing and advertising background. I was aware of these things and yet I still succumb to them. So I can't even imagine someone who doesn't think about that stuff every day or that's not their job, um, how hard that must be. And that's the beauty of this fire thing that we found is it's given us the framework to tackle so much more than just investment strategy. You know, it's tackling happiness. It's tackling uh, fulfillment and self-actualization. And um, I've learned a lot about myself and my own ego and and so many things. But you don't get to those lessons without going through hardships. You know, you don't get to those points without without getting to the bottom. You know, you got to hit rock bottom before you make decide to make that change. So so this is a very polarizing framework. It's a very polarizing topic. 
to talk about, you know, to address these things like, why are you working at that particular job? Is that what you want to be doing? You know, people don't want to address the fact that they always wanted to be an astronaut and now they're a you know, car salesman, you know, and people don't want to talk about that. And I get it, mm. you know, and I, and I empathize and I've, I've been through that myself. So mm. I don't know. Am I going yeah. off track? No, no, not at all. It, you know, it, one thing that's coming up for me as I hear you talk about this is that we often forget that some of the people who are doing the coolest things are people who are financially independent, and they're not necessarily part of the FIRE community. They may not have even heard the phrase financial independence, but Elon Musk is a perfect example. He's not working because he needs to buy groceries and pay for his utility bill and cover his mortgage. Like That's not the reason he goes to work every day. <laughs> He's past that. He is financially independent, I'm sure. He could live on the money that he already has for the rest of his life and leave plenty to his kids. And that's all taken care of. And the freedom that he has from that allows him to colonize Mars and have a dream of putting a million humans on Mars. And I think that sometimes gets lost. Like a lot of the people, the wealthy people out there are also people who are financially independent and they're doing amazing things. It's so funny that you bring up Elon. <laughs> There's like reports going on right now as we record this that Tesla's going to have to file for bankruptcy, that like they're not kicking out enough cars like they said they would. And so, you know, their publicly traded company is those investors are going to get really riled up and angry. And and I love if you follow Elon on mm -hmm. Twitter. <laughs> I do. I follow him on Twitter, Instagram, on all the platforms. Yeah, yeah. You Then you know, like. I love that he addresses it, but he does it in such a humorous way because I understand where he's coming from. And it's exactly that point you're making is that I don't think they seem to get it. Like he's not doing this for the profit. He's doing this exactly. to change the damn world. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like uh, it reminds me of an episode of The Office, <laughs> the Michael Scott Paper Company, <laughs> where Steve Carell branches off, you know, Michael, he branches off from Dunder Mifflin, starts his own company. And he's sitting down and they're saying, you can't sustain, you know, you can't survive with this model. You're losing money. And he's like, it doesn't matter. I'll start another company and another one and another one. Elon just launched like a rocket every 13 days or something like that. Um, <laughs> this last year into mm -hmm. space, everybody told him, including the astronauts that went to space for the first time, that this could not be done, shouldn't be done, won't be done. And people are doubting that they're going to figure out the Model 3 production line. <laughs> and because he is so mission-driven, you know what? If they can't figure out the Model 3 production line, every single person who is an Elon fan will kick over 100 or 500 or 1,000 bucks to keep him floating until he does. Yeah. He has so many raving fans because we know that there's mission behind this. Yes, and so we can learn a lot from Elon, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> As a fire community, where uh, we have enough passionate people following this that I think they'll uh, they'll do the same. They'll they'll prop this thing up to continue the mission right. of trying to provide a rich, happy, and fulfilling life to as many people as we can. Right. I mean that's that's our mission. And you know, JD Roth set my the course of my life on fire through his blog, telling me that I should write a personal mission statement. And I thought, as an entrepreneur, how the hell did I mm. miss doing a personal mission statement when I've done you know ten of them for my own companies? Like, mm. what the hell? And I and I wrote one, and then that transcended into this project that we're working on now. And as long as we keep that mission in mind, I think we'll be okay. Mm. You know, I think 
ultimately our mission is a good mission. It's, you know, trying to help other people achieve their best life. And it's hopefully a happy and fulfilling one. I mean, that's it. And what's on your personal mission statement? Oh my gosh, my personal mission statement. Let's see if I can do it. I, I want to be present for those around me and those who love me. I want to live a life bigger than myself and I want those around me to, uh, no, no, that's not how it goes. (laughs) It ends with, and I want to live a rich, happy, and meaningful life and help others achieve the same. It's something like that. (laughs) And, you know, I probably always kind of knew that's what I wanted, but I never put it into that context. And the strength of that, the, the power of that is that you get to turn around anytime you have a difficult decision, anytime you feel weird about a decision, even probably appropriately when you're when you're making decisions that feel right uh, is just do your best to remember to throw it through that quick filter. Is this is this helping me achieve that mission? Am I going to be more present by making this decision? Am I going to am I going to help affect others lives? Am I going to help my own life and my own happiness? You know, it's pretty simple stuff. But when you're not thinking that way, it's very easy to forget it and to miss it and to, you know, just skip over it or not even not even know to do that. Right. And it's like what you don't know. You don't know. And um, once Taylor and I came to the realization that the lifestyle creep that we had let come into our lives had such a profound effect negatively on our lives and we didn't even notice, Mm -hmm. I don't really trust myself anymore. (laughs) So it's good to have parameters that are nice and solid. (laughs) So I I love JD for giving us that exercise and allowing me to, you know, start living my life with that framework and that transcended into the project we're doing now. And um, yeah. Do you have one? I don't have a personal mission statement. No, I've never written one. Paula. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Get on it. I'll tell you what, the next time I talk to you, I want to know that you worked on it. You don't have to come to one. I mean, he even says like, this took me years and I'm sure I'll, I'll go back to mine at least once a year and make sure it's still in line with what I want and what my life's about. But I cannot recommend doing that enough. It's fantastic. I will work on that. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Scott, and congratulations to both Scott and Taylor and their baby for journeying into this really amazing new lifestyle, this uh, lifestyle of having time freedom, having the freedom to do whatever it is that you want to do without having to worry. I'm really glad that you guys are on this path, and I'm very excited to see this documentary that unfolds as a result. In a minute, I'm going to cover the core takeaways. But first, since Scott and I ended this conversation by discussing personal mission statements, My goal was that in the outro, I would share what I've created. What actually ended up happening is that I went to J.D. Roth's blog post on how to write a personal mission statement. Uh, We'll link to that article in the show notes. And there was one line in this post that stood out. It said, quote, have a plan so amazing, so glowing that you're willing to walk blurry eyed to work every day to make the money necessary to achieve it. And I looked at that and I thought, Jeez, I don't know if I if there's anything that is motivating enough for me now that I'm willing to walk blurry eyed to work every day to do it. Uh, Certainly in my 20s, you know, buying all those rental properties and building financial independence. That's what that was. So at that point, I guess my that plan that was so amazing and so glowing at that time in my life was to not ever go back to the traditional nine to five workforce. and to figure out how to make multiple streams of income outside of traditional employment so that I wouldn't have to do that. That was the plan that guided me through my 20s. 
now in my 30s, geez, I don't know what that plan is. I don't know what next would apply to that sentiment. So I still don't have a personal mission statement. I wanted to write one and share it with you in the outro, but I can't rush it. And I guess if there's any takeaway from that, it's that your mission and values and priorities do shift over time. And especially once you've reached financial independence, it reframes everything into a very new light. And your quest for meaning becomes, I don't know if deeper is necessarily the right word for it, but it becomes different. I don't know if that's a takeaway or not. Maybe it's just a reflection, but take that for what you will. Let's talk about the actual takeaways from Scott's interview. All right, core takeaway number one. If you are a low to middle income earner, boosting your income is the single most important thing you can do. But if, like Scott and Taylor, you are already high income earners, your immediate payoff and the biggest 80-20 that you can make to your life comes from saving. I later found out it's called like a Harajuku moment. Uh, At least that was coined by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's like a moment in time when you realize like something needs to change immediately. And that was it for me. It was like, okay, wait a minute. My savings rate is more powerful than my earning rate in my case. Ah, the Harajuku moment. The savings rate for, for many people, especially if you're already earning a good income, your savings rate is more powerful than your earnings rate. And if you're not earning a good income, it's the opposite. If you are currently making 40 grand or 50 grand a year, you know what? Your earnings rate is probably the thing that you should focus on. Because if you double that, well, you know what? Here, let's just frame it in purely mathematical terms. Let's say that you currently make $60,000 a year. And you know that if you started a side business or a side hustle or something, you could make an extra 30 grand. So you could go from making 60 a year to 90 a year, right? Compare that to cutting your car out of your life completely. Let's say that doing that allows you to save $300 a month, which is $3,600 a year. $3,600 a year is absolutely an important amount of money, but it is an order of magnitude less than the impact of making an extra 30 grand a year. And so particularly if you're on that lower end of the income spectrum, that's where your power is. But on the other hand, in Scott and Taylor's case, they were already making really good incomes. They were already holding this magical power in their hand and they just weren't wielding it properly. So if you've got a high income already, you've already done the hard part. You're like almost all the way there. You've got that power in your hands. You've got those resources right there in your hands. Now all you have to do is manage those. So anyway, that's core takeaway number one. For those of you who are listening who are already high income earners, your biggest power comes from knowing how to harness that income that you are already making. Okay, core takeaway number two, create a happiness list and ask yourself, what are the top 10 things that make you happy on a weekly basis? You know, we hadn't even had discussions like this before. And and why wouldn't we? Um, Happiness is so important. Why aren't we focused on that more often? I'm guessing that when you make a list of things that make you happy, expensive luxury items probably won't be on there. Just, Just a hunch. All right. Core takeaway number three. Do you actually want to buy an item or are you masking your unhappiness through the purchase? Remember Scott's story about how Taylor drove this BMW because 
not because she loved BMWs, but because there was some aspect of her life that she wasn't quite happy about. She felt like she was working really, really hard. And so she started to feel like she deserved to enjoy the benefits of that work. Also, she was tormented by the idea that she had to be away from her baby, be away from her family, me, in order to work. And that didn't sit right with her. She didn't like that. And so she thought, well, if I buy a BMW, if I buy a luxury vehicle, then it's kind of like treat yourself. So reflect on your purchases and ask yourself why you want this item. And if the item is, in fact, a Band-Aid or a mask over some other deeper dissatisfaction, then that's illuminating because, you know, it's not going to actually solve the problem. Solve the correct problem. Core takeaway number four, join a supportive community because financial independence is a multi-year, unconventional, weird goal and lifestyle, and you're going to need that social support. And you don't have to take part in Reddit forums unless you want to. Even just developing a community of of one or two people, like you, you don't need a, a billion, just one or two people who really understand can make a huge difference. And we didn't recognize what I think we've figured out to be that fire and a lot of the things that we're talking about actually open up a lot of wounds. It can make people feel judged. It can make people feel defensive. And then core takeaway number five needs no introduction. It is one sentence and it is beautiful. And I will let Scott state this himself. There was a line that I heard when I first got into this. It was something like, it's simple, but that doesn't make it easy. Those are the core takeaways from our show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Coming up on future episodes, we have an interview with Shane Snow, a brilliant thinker and writer who talks about how to make lateral hacks throughout life and work. We also, oh, major announcement. I can't believe I almost forgot to say this. All right. So big announcement, big change. For the rest of the year 2018, we are adding one additional bonus episode per month to this podcast. This is normally a weekly show. We have a new episode every Monday morning. That will continue. The show will go on as it always has. And in addition to that, once a month on the first Friday of the month, we're also going to release a bonus episode. And so that'll be starting next month, starting June 2018. On the first Friday, we're going to release a bonus episode. Now, to make sure that you don't miss this and to make sure you don't miss any of the other episodes, please do me a huge favor. Go into your favorite podcast player, whether it's Apple, Stitcher, Overcast. Hit the subscribe button. That way you'll be subscribed to the show and you will get informed of new episodes as they appear. If you want to read the show notes for today's episode, they're available at affordanything.com slash episode 131. Please, if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review and most importantly, share this with a friend. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything podcast. I'll catch you next week.